You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Reading by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. Holocaust by Charles Willard Diffin. The Red Army of Occupation was halfway across Communist Germany, hailed as they went as the saviours of the world. London had gone the way of Paris. Rome had followed. The countries of France and England and Italy were beaten to their knees. We who rule the air, rule the world, boasted General Vornikov. The Russian broadcasting station had the insolence to put on the air his message to the people of America. I heard his voice as plainly as if he stood in my office, and I was seeing again the coming of that endless stream of aerial torpedoes and the red cruisers hanging in the heights to pick up control and dash the messengers of death upon a helpless city. But I was visioning it in New York. "'The masses of American people are with us,' said the complacently arrogant voice. "'For our fellow workers we have only brotherly affection. It is your capitalist-dominated government that must submit.' and if it does not ha i heard him laugh before he went on we are coming to the rescue of you our brothers across the sea now we have work to do in europe our gains must be consolidated and the conquest of our glorious air force made secure and then we warn you in advance and we laugh at your efforts to prepare for our coming we even tell you the date in thirty days the invasion begins it will end only at washington when the great country of america its cruel shackles cast off from the laboring masses joins the brotherhood the workers of the world there was a man from the war department who sat across from me at my desk my factories were being taken over my electric furnaces must pour out molten metal for use in war. He cursed softly under his breath as the voice ceased. "'The dirty dog!' he exclaimed. "'That lying hypocrite! He talks of brotherhood to us who know the damnable Inquisition and reign of terror that he and his crowd have forced upon Russia. Thirty days! Well, we have three thousand planes ready for battle today. There'll be more in thirty days. Now!' about that vanadium steel but i'll confess i hardly heard him i was hearing the roar of an armada of red craft that ensanguined the sky and i was seeing the curving flight of torpedoes each an airplane in itself thirty days and each minute of each hour must be used in close touch with the war department i knew much that was going on and all that I knew was the merest trifle in the vast preparations for defence. My earlier apprehensions were dulled. The sight I had of the whole force of a mighty nation welded into one driving power, working to one definite end, was exhilarating. New York and Washington. These, it was felt, would be the points of first attack. They must be protected and I saw the flights of planes that seemed endless as they converged at the concentration camps. Fighters at first, bombers and swift scouts. They came in from all parts of the land. Then the passenger planes and the big mail ships. Transcontinental runs were abandoned or cut to a skeleton service of a ship 
every hour for the transport of government men. Even the slower craft of the feeder lines were commandeered. Anything that could fly and could mount a gun. And the three thousand fighting ships, as the man from Washington had said, grew to three times that number. Their roaring filled the skies with thunder, and beneath them were other camps of infantry and artillery. The Atlantic front was an armed camp, where highways no longer carried thousands of cars on pleasure bent. By night and day I saw those familiar roads from the air. They were solid with a never-ending line of buses and vans and long processions of motorized artillery and tanks whose clattering bedlam came to me a thousand feet above. Yes, it was an inspiring sight, and I lost the deadly oppression and the sense of impending doom until our intelligence service told us of the sailing of the enemy fleet. They had seized every vessel in the waters of Europe, and, God pity the poor traitorous devils who manned them, there were plenty to operate the ships. Two thousand vessels were in that convoy. Ringed in as they were by a guard of destroyers and fighting craft of many kinds, whose mastheads carried the blood-red flag now instead of their former emblems, our submarines couldn't reach them. But our own fleet went out to measure their strength, and a thousand navy planes took the air on the following day. Uppermost in my own mind, and in everyone's mind, I think, was the question of air force. Would they bring the red ships? What was their cruising range? Could they cross the Atlantic with their enormous load of armoured hull, or must they be transported? Were the air cruisers with the fleet, or would they come later? How Vornikoff and his assassins must have laughed as they built the monsters, armoured them, and mounted the heavy guns so much greater than anything they would meet. The rest of us, all the rest of the world, had been kept in ignorance, and now our own flyers were sweeping out over the grey waters to find the answer to our questions. I've tried to picture that battle. I've tried to imagine the feelings of those men on the dreadnoughts and battle cruisers and destroyers. There was no attempt on the enemy's part to conceal his position. His wireless was crackling through the air with messages that our intelligence department easily decoded. Our navy flyers roared out over the sea, out and over the American fleet, whose every bow was a line of white that told of their haste to meet the oncoming horde. The plane carriers threw their fighters into the air to join the cavalcade above, and a trace of smoke over the horizon told that the giant fleet was coming into range. And then, instead of positions and ranges flashed back from our own swift scouts, came messages of an enemy's attack. Our men must have seen them from the towers of our own fleet. They must have known what the Red Swarm meant, as it came like rolling, fire-lit smoke far out in the sky, and they must have read plainly their own helplessness as they saw our thousand planes go down. They were overwhelmed, obliterated, and the red horde of air cruisers was hardly checked in its sweep. Carnage and destruction, those blue seas of the North Atlantic have seen, they could tell tales of brave men, bravely going to their death in storm and calm, but never have they seen another such slaughter as that day's sun showed. The anti-aircraft guns roared vainly. Some few of our planes that had escaped returned to add their futile puny blows. 
the waters about the ships were torn to foam while the ships themselves were changed to furnaces of bursting flame until the seas in mercy closed above them and took their torn steel and the shattered bodies that they held to the silence of the deep we got it all at washington i sat in a room with a group of white-faced men who stared blindly at a radio cone where a quiet voice was telling of disaster it was admiral graymont speaking to us from the bridge of the big dreadnought lincoln the flagship of the combined fleet good old graymont his best friend bill shuler secretary of the navy was sitting wordless there beside me it's the end the quiet voice was saying the cruiser squadrons are gone two more battleships have gone down there are only five of us left a squadron of enemy planes is coming in above our men have fought bravely and with never a chance there they've got us the bombs Goodbye, Bill, old fellow. The radio cone was silent, with a silence that roared deafeningly in our ears, and beside me I saw the Secretary of the Navy, a Navy now without ships or men, drop his tired, lined face into his hands while his broad shoulders shook convulsively. The rest of us remained in our chairs, too stunned to do anything but look at one another in horror. We expected them to strike at New York. I was sent up there, and it was there that I saw Paul again. I met him on Lower Broadway, and I went up to him with my hand reaching for his. I didn't admire Paul's affiliations, but he had warned me. He had tried to save my life, and I wanted to thank him. But his hand did not meet mine. There was a strange, wild look in his eyes. I couldn't define it, and he brought his gaze back from far off to stare at me as if I were a stranger then still got that abc ship he demanded yes i answered wonderingly jug it he said and his laugh was as wild and incomprehensible as his look had been i said after him as he walked away i was puzzled but there were other things to think of then a frenzy of preparation and all in vain the enemy fooled us the radio brought the word from quebec they have entered the st lawrence was the message it flashed then later the red fleet is passing toward montreal enemy planes have started all radio towers there is one above us now and that ended the message from quebec but we got more information later they landed near montreal they were preparing a great base for offensive operations the country was overrun with a million men the sky was full of planes by night and day. There was no artillery, no field guns of any sort, but there were torpedo planes by tens of thousands which made red fields of waiting death where trucks placed them as they took them from the ships. And there were some of us who smiled sardonically in recollection of the mammoth plants the Vornikov Reds had installed in central Russia and the plaudits that had greeted their plans for nitrogen fixation. They were to make fertilizers. The nitrates would be distributed without cost to the farms. This had pacified the agrarians. And here were their nitrates that were to make fertile the fields of Russia. Countless thousands of tons of nitro-explosives in these flying torpedoes. 
but if we smiled mirthlessly at these recollections, we worked while we chewed on our cud of bitterness. Then came an order. Evacuate New England, and the job was given to me. With planes, a thousand of them, trucks, vans, the railroads, we gathered those terrified people into concentration camps and took them over the ground, under the ground, and through the air to the distributing camp at Buffalo, where they were scattered to other points. I saw the preparations for a battlefront below me as I skimmed over Connecticut. Trenches made a thin line that went farther than I could see. Here was the dam that was expected to stop the enemy columns from the north. I think no one then believed that our air force could check the assault. The men of the fighting planes were marked for death. One read it in their eyes. But who of us was not? How those giant cruisers would be down no man could say, but we worked on in a blind desperation. We would hold that invading army as long as men could sight a gun. We would hold them back, and somehow, some way, we must find the means to repel the invasion from the air. I saw the lines of track that made a network back to the trenches. Like the suburban lines around New York, they would carry thousands of single cars, each driven at terrific speed by the airplane propeller at its bow. With these, the commanders could shift their forces to whatever sector was hardest pressed. They would be bombed, of course, but the hundreds of tracks would not all be destroyed, and the line must be held. The line! It brought a strangling lump to my throat as I saw those thin markings of trenches, the marching bodies of troops, the brave, hopeless, determined men who went singing to their places in that line. But my planes were winging past me. My job was ahead, where a multitude still waited and prayed for deliverance. We never finished the job. In two days the Red Horde was upon us. Their swarming troops were convoyed by planes, but no effort was made to fly over our lines and launch an attack. Were they feeling their way? Did they think now that they would find us passive and unresisting? Did they want to take our cities undamaged? Oh, we asked ourselves a thousand questions with no answer to any, except the knowledge that a million men were marching from the north, that their fleet of planes would attack as soon as the troops encountered resistance, that our batteries of anti-aircraft guns would harry them as they came, and our air fleet, held back in reserve, would take what the batteries left. My last planes, with their fugitive loads, passed close to the lines of red troops. There were red planes overhead, but they let us pass unhindered. Fleeing, driving wildly towards the south, we were unworthy, it seemed, of even their contemptuous attention. But I was sick to actual nausea at the sight of the villages and cities where only a part of the population had escaped. Roads in front of the red columns were jammed with motors and with men and women and children on foot. A hopeless tangle. I was watching the pitiful fight below me, cursing my own impotence to be of help, when a shrill whistling froze me rigid to my controls. I'd heard it before. There could be no mistaking the cry of that oncoming torpedo, and I saw the damnable thing pass close to my ship. I was doing two hundred. My motor was throttled down, but this inhuman monster passed me as if my ship was frozen as unmoving as myself. It tore on ahead. I saw an enemy plane above it some five thousand feet. 
The torpedo was checked. I saw it poise, then it curved over and down, and the screaming motor took up its cry that was like a thousand devils until its sound was lost in the screams from below and the infernal blast of its own explosion. Only a trial flight, an experiment to test their controls. No need for me to try to tell you of the thoughts that tore me through and through while I struggled to bring my ship to an even keel in the hurricane of explosion that drove up at me from below. But I spat out the one word, BROTHERHOOD, and I prayed for a place in the front line where I might send one shot at least against so beastly a foe. That was somewhere in Massachusetts. Their foremost columns were close behind. They came to a stop some fifty miles from our waiting line of battle. I learned this when I got to Washington. And the reason, too, was known. It was published in all the papers. There had been messages to the President, broadcast to the world from an unknown source. To the President of the United States, warning! This war must end. You, as Commander-in-Chief of the American forces, can bring it to a close. I have prevailed upon the Red Army of the Brotherhood to halt. They have listened to me. You also must take heed. You will issue orders at once to withdraw all resistance. You will disband your army, ground all your planes, bring all your artillery into one place, and prepare to turn the government of this country over to the representatives of the Central Council. You will act at once. This war is ended. All wars are ended forevermore. I have spoken. And the strange message was signed. Paul. The wild words of a maniac it was thought at first. Yet the fact remained that the enemy's advance had ceased. Who was this Paul who had prevailed upon the Red Army to halt? And then the obvious answer occurred. It was a ruse on the part of the Reds. They feared to attack. Their strength was not as great as we had thought. Officers and men of all branches of the service took new heart and plunged more frenziedly still into the work of preparation. There were direction finders that had taken the message from several stations. Their point has converged upon one definite location in southern Ohio. Over an area of twenty square miles, that place was combed for a sending radio where the message could have originated. Combed in vain. The next demand came at ten on the following morning. To the President of the United States, you have disregarded my warning. You will not do so again. I have power to enforce my demands. I had hoped that bloodshed and destruction might cease, but it is plain that only that will save you from your own headstrong folly. I must strike. At noon today the capital in Washington will be destroyed. See that it is emptied of human life. I have spoken. Paul. A maniac, surely, yet a maniac with strange powers the graphs of the radio direction finders showed a curve. When they were assembled, the reading could only mean that the instrument that had sent the threat had moved over fifty miles during the few minutes of its sending. 
This, I think, is what brought the order to vacate the big domed building in Washington. Of course, the Capitol building had been searched. There was not a nook nor corner from roof to basement but had been gone over in search of an explosive machine. And now it was empty, and a guard of soldiers made a solid cordon surrounding it. No one could approach upon the ground, and, above, a series of circling patrol planes, one squadron above another, guarded against approach by air. With such a defence, the capital and its grounds seemed impregnable. My watch said 11.59. I held it in my hand and watched the seconds tick slowly by. The city was hushed. It seemed that no man was so much as breathing. 11.59. 60. And an instant later I heard the shriek of something that tore the air to screaming fragments. I saw it as it came on a straight level line from the east, a flash like a meteor of glistening white. It passed beneath the planes that were motionless by contrast, drove straight for the gleaming capital dome, passed above it, and swept on in a long flattened curve that bent outward and up. It was gone from my sight, though the shrieking air was still tearing at my ears when I saw the great building unfold. Time meant nothing. My racing mind made slow and deliberate the explosion that lifted the roofs and threw the walls in dusty masses upon the ground. So slow it seemed, and I had not even seen the shell that the white meteor ship had fired. Yet there was the beautiful building expanding, disintegrating. It was a cloud of dust when the concussion reached me to dash me breathless to the earth. The white meteor was the vehicle of Paul, the dictator. From it had come the radio message whose source had moved so swiftly. I saw this all plainly. There was a conference of high officials at the War Department building, and the secretary summed up all that was said. A new form of air flight, and a new weapon more destructive than any we have known. That charge of explosive that was fired at the Capitol was so small as to be unseen. We can't meet it. We can only fight. Fight on till the end. A message came in as we sat there, a message to the commander-in-chief, who had come over from the White House under military guard. Surrender, it demanded. I have shown you my power. It is inexhaustible, unconquerable. Surrender or be destroyed. It is the dawn of a new day, the day of the brotherhood of man. Let bloodshed cease. Surrender. I command it. Paul. The President of the United States held the flimsy paper in his hand. He rose slowly to his feet, and he read it aloud to all of us assembled there, read it to the last hateful word. Then, Surrender? he asked. He turned steady, quiet eyes upon the big flag whose red and white and blue made splendid the wall behind him, and I'll swear that I saw him smile. We have had many presidents since seventy-six, big men some of them, tall, handsome men, men who looked as if nature had moulded them for a high place. This man was small of stature, the shortest man in all that room if he had stood, but he was big, big! Only one who is great can look deep through the whirling turmoil of the moment to find the eternal verities that are always underneath, and smile. 
Man must die. He spoke meditatively, in seeming communing with himself, as one who tries to face a problem squarely and honestly. And nations must pass. Time overwhelms us all. Yet there is that which never dies and never surrenders. He looked about the room now, as if he saw us for the first time. Gentlemen, he said quietly, we have here an ultimatum. It is backed by power which our Secretary of War says is invincible. We are faced by an enemy who would annihilate these United States, and this new power fights on the side of the enemy. Must we go the way of England, of France, of all Europe? It would seem so. The United States of America is doomed. Yet each one of us will meet what comes bravely if, facing our own end, we know that the principles upon which this nation is founded must go on. If only the stars and stripes still floats before our closing eyes to assure us that some future day will see the resurrection of truth and of honor and kindness among men. We will fight, as our Secretary of War has said, fight on to the end. We will surrender? Never! That is our answer to this one who calls himself Paul. We could not speak. I do not know how long the silence lasted, but I know that I left that room a silent man among many silent men, in whose eyes I saw a reflection of the emotion that filled my own heart. It was the end, the end of America, of millions of American homes, but this was better than surrender to such a foe, better death than slavery to that race of bloodthirsty oppressors. End of section 10